Oh, there we go, finally. Okay. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. Gamel. Together, walk, also known as Camelfoot. And I have a note here that says, always read this set of verses before reading the Bible. Go ahead. Somebody told me that. Oh, yes. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant. You are cursed, and you and, and who who are cursed who are who stray from your commands. Remove me, remove from me scorn and contempt, for I kept your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselor. Good deal. Okay, well, I didn't check this before we started, so if I start bawling, you know it's an emotional one, but we'll see. Um, this day in history, August 29th, what a doctor you will make. W.A. Criswell heard these words hundreds of times from his mother while growing up in rural Texas in the 1910s. When Criswell was 10 years old, the Southern Baptist Church the, the family attended held a Wednesday morning service during its annual revival. Sitting next to his mother, he realized that this would be the day he would accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Tears streamed down his cheeks as his mother leaned over him and asked him, W.A., will you give your heart to Jesus today? Yes, mother, he answered, I will. And when the evangelist invited those who would put their faith in Jesus to come forward, young Criswell did. Criswell's mother willingly sacrificed her own life in order to guarantee a good education for her son. Three different times, she temporarily left her husband and moved with her son to further his education. First, to be closer to his elementary school, then to be sure that he graduated from an accredited high school, and then to oversee his education at Baylor University. Criswell felt the call to the ministry. Although his mother was a committed Christian, her lifelong dream was that her son would rise out of poverty by becoming a doctor. She kept hoping he would outgrow his interest in becoming a preacher. At Baylor, he sent, spent every spare minute evangelizing, making his mother very concerned about his preoccupation. When he received four A's and a B his first semester, the mother replied sternly, it isn't easy getting into medical school. Every B plus is a mark against us. Criswell and his mother returned home to Amarillo for the summer. Although she realized her dream was slowly dying, she occasionally brought up the subject of his becoming a doctor. There's plenty of time to choose a pre-med major and you could preach on the side. A doctor with a gift for preaching would be quite unique, you know. Finally, Criswell replied firmly, I love you, mother, but God has called me to preach and I have to answer that call. At the end of that first summer at home from Baylor, Criswell was ordained into the Southern Baptist ministry on August 29th of 1928 after being questioned by six Baptist leaders to determine that his conversion was genuine that he was called to the ministry and that he was well-versed in Baptist doctrine, he was ordained. He eagerly scanned the crowd for his parents, but did not see them. Then the pastors and deacons laid hands on Criswell and prayed for him. As the congregation echoed their last amen, he was relieved to catch a quick glimpse of his parents. His mother was smiling through her tears, and his father was looking pleased and proud. Criswell was overjoyed. The next morning, W.A. Criswell boarded the train for Baylor. His mother had devoted 13 years of her life to her son's education, 
all with the dream of his becoming a doctor, she finally realized that God's call on his life was stronger than her dream, and it was time for her to step aside. W.A. Criswell graduated from Baylor University and then received a THM and a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He pastored for a few years in Oklahoma before accepting a call from First Baptist Church of Dallas in 1944, where he served for almost 50 years. Under Criswell's ministry, the church became the largest Southern Baptist congregation in the nation with nearly 26,000 members. He wrote more than 50 books and was considered one of the greatest preachers of America. W.A. Criswell died on January 10th, 2002 at the age of 92. And they ask, if you have children, have you ever found yourself imposing your ambitions on them? Have you personally had someone try to point your life in a direction you did not want to go? We all have had, we all have to be careful about imposing our will on those around us. And 2 Corinthians 1.24, that does not mean we want to tell you exactly how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy as you stand firm in your faith. So there you go. Um, it's not necessary to come forward at a salvation call. That's something that people do in some churches, and I have no problem with it personally. Some people, they love to point fingers over little things, and that's nowhere in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of things that aren't in the Bible that people do. But salvation comes through belief in your heart. That's where it's from. So everything else is just eye candy or maybe it's, uh, you know, helping somebody to uh, uh, prompt other people to make a call. You know, you don't know what's going to move one person to make a decision from when another. W.A.'s mother said, when, before he even right. said, he goes, I'm sitting here and I decided. That That's right. I've decided to follow Jesus. That's He'd right. Already done it. He'd already done it. He just went forward to let the church know that he had done it. So. I have no problem with that. I do have a problem with, you know, when they, 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 Southern Baptist doctrine and Pentecostal doctrine, and, you know, it's the Bible. I understand that different denominations have things that they set down, but in the end, a lot of those can actually be a hindrance to a walk with the Lord, not a, you know, a, a bonus, because uh, they start adding in their little things that have nothing to do with Scripture. And I can assure you, the Southern Baptist Convention has several that are not anywhere recorded in Scripture. Um, I'll say this now. I'll say it maybe again. We'll pray in a minute. Um, I'll say it maybe again Sunday if we meet, and then uh, I'll just keep saying it for the next couple months is that uh, the guy in Kenya that has the Superior Word uh, Fellowship over there, they received enough money to buy the property when we made an appeal, and now they are trying to raise money in Kenya for uh, the building of a church, okay? And so there are two, two things, buy the property and build a church. And so uh, if anybody feels moved to help out with that particular uh, issue of building or helping them build their church, they will be doing this fundraiser in Kenya, but they also sent me a thing and it says, I'm willing to help. And, you know, it's the way they kind of do these handout things over there. But um, uh, just so you know, if that touches your heart and you want to help them, uh, you know, build their church they will be collecting until 30 november and then they're going to have a meeting and see if they have enough etc so there you go with that and i'll announce it again and again until that day is met and um then i have some prayer requests and we'll get started here in one second lynn fell while shopping and so uh, we need prayer for lynn les is preaching this weekend who does the less rick and he would like prayer for that Kathy has spreading cancer, and they are talking hospice. So we want to pray about that as well. Henry Groover advanced prostate cancer, and he's gone. It has gone to his organs, 
And one good thing about that is they say he's witnessing to everybody in the hospital. So sounds like Paul stole to me. Um, and then we have John whacked his knee and they're praying that surgery will not be needed. Apparently he's in a lot of pain. So we wanna pray for these people and for opening the service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come here. What a pleasure it is to be in this, this uh, congregation and to share with these people and the ones that are online with us. And it really is a joy just to know that we're in fellowship over your word, the, the wonderful, precious gift that you have given us. And Lord, you've heard these prayer requests and you know the other ones that have not been written down or maybe that people have in their own hearts that they would like uh, uh, mentioned it, it, from them to you and that you would uh, respond accordingly. And Lord, we also pray for the, uh, the uh, Bible study tonight that we would handle your word properly and that things would go well and uh, that we would not deviate from sound doctrine. And uh, should there be something which is incorrect, I would pray that you would open the eyes of the people to that so that they would not be led astray by something I've analyzed improperly. And Lord, we certainly thank you for this word again. What a precious gift it is. It tells us about Jesus, our Lord, and how wonderful is he. So we say these things in his name. Amen. Okay, uh, first order of the day is to say that uh, right now, I just checked the most current weather chart, and it shows uh, Dorian coming over Florida, and we are right in the cone where they say, this is right now, that Sunday morning at 8 a.m., they're expecting, according to you know the, just their predictions, which always get changed, but right now, the most current prediction of the forecast is that we would have about 70 mile an hour winds over Sarasota at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. If that's the case, then you know we just probably will not be able to open the church, and not so much for the wind, because I don't care about that, I'll come in here. But the problem is that if they do that, they will probably have a mandatory evacuation on Siesta Key. I live on Siesta Key, and I am not going to leave Siesta Key if I cannot get back on, because I got nowhere to go. If I come to church, it's gonna do me no good at all to have nowhere to go. And so uh, what I would suggest is watch Facebook. I'll update that. If you want, email me and I can let you know on Saturday. Don't email after six o'clock on Saturday because I'll have my stuff that I'm doing, eating and then going to bed and I ain't staying up past eight o'clock. So if you want to find out what our plans are, email before uh, uh, six o'clock on Saturday and um, we'll get the word out to the local people because uh, they'll need to know. But We'll just see how it goes, and it's no big deal, but I just, we still, we may, it's up to Sergio, if he can do a prophecy update like we did during Irma two years ago, it was September two years ago, um, uh, we did a prophecy update from the house, and I will do that if we can get the uh, the streaming going, and that's totally up to Sergio, so it does not mean we won't have church at all, we will just have a prophecy update and no sermon, but if we come into the building, then we'll have our regular things, but that's all. Just kind of pay attention and uh, email if necessary, and we will find out here in a couple days what the status is. Right now, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. A lot of people will be unhappy about this eventually if they click on 1 Corinthians 14 and they want to follow it. And I'm talking about charismatics in particular, but you know, you never know. Uh, I'm not here to please people over my doctrine. If they don't like it, they can click off or give me a thumbs down. It makes no difference. What? It's my doctrine. It's his word. So yes. But I, I, I'm not going to change what I believe simply because it makes people happy and it well, doesn't bother me. You never preach on prophecy update and, 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 unless it was last Sunday. What's I that? You, I think you preached about five minutes last Sunday. 
On what? On prophecy, the prophecy during the prophecy update. Yeah, you had you, you put the scripture. Oh yes, during the prophecy update. Absolutely, we did we did do a little bit of that last Sunday. That is true. So you so. might want to do that. Uh, this one. Oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll add something in there. If it's if that's all we have is a prophecy update from yeah. the house, I'll make it much longer than it normally is because yeah. I've got nothing else to do. Yeah. You know, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Okay. Yes. When you're talking about the hurricane, what's that fruit? Durian. What's the name of this hurricane? Dorian. Completely different. Dorian is the loser. Durian is where stink. it's at. Okay. Yeah. They both stink. All right. 14 1. <laughs> yes. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially. The gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Okay, here we go. Paul now returns to the subject of what he spoke about before, gifts, which he left off with in chapter 12. And he didn't really leave off with it. It's chapter 13 was love, but that was love based on, as we said a couple times during the commentary, remember where the context is speaking about gifts. And so he didn't really deviate from it, but that was the subject, whereas love was the subject of chapter 13. Now, yes, here it is. However, even in chapter 13, he never really left the issue behind. Rather, he had used his discourse on love to show the believers at Corinth that their use of gifts, and especially tongues, wasn't in line with that precept. This will be seen in his coming words. In order to set up his logic concerning tongues in the coming verses, he will first introduce a thought concerning obtaining a different gift. Why would he do this? The answer becomes evident when we see how Paul viewed the gift of tongues and its use within the church at Corinth. He viewed it very much the way that I think most of the people in this church would view how charismatic used tongues in there. But there, they were actually doing it properly. They were just not adhering. You know, they needed instruction. Whereas in the charismatic churches today, they're not doing it properly at all. They're making stuff up that isn't even a real tongue. But we'll go on. Um, chapter 14 will explain these things in detail and understanding his instruction on tongues in proper context should be mandatory for every charismatic Bible, college, seminary, and church. Almost every verse in chapter 14, a chapter which is 40 verses long, is given to properly instruct us on the completely abused gift of tongues. That's right. He's got his tongue hanging out over there. <laughs> And so to begin the chapter, he says to pursue love. This asks us to reflect on his words of chapter 13. Everything that is done should have this as its main consideration. In pursuing love, the use of our spiritual gifts will be proper. Secondly, he says to also pursue spiritual gifts. True gifts of the Spirit are necessary for the instruction and edification of the church. We saw that all the way through the previous couple chapters. In that, then, we are to pursue obtaining them. In fact, in 1231, just before his parenthetical thought concerning love of chapter 13, he said, but earnestly desire the best gifts. So it is right to seek after spiritual gifts, and it is right to seek after the best of those gifts. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Having said that, and understanding the context of his words, he now finishes this verse with, but especially that you may prophesy. Why has he said this? To understand fully, consider again what he was speaking about in chapter 12, all of the gifts of the Spirit. To him, the best of the gifts was that of prophesying. This does not mean specifically forthtelling, but I'm sorry, foretelling, as Jeremiah might, but forthtelling. Forthtelling is the right interpretation and then explanation 
of Scripture in order to build up and edify the church. It is what we today call preaching. The value of preaching the word is the highest gift to Paul because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The means of hearing about the salvation which God has chosen for the people of the world is preaching. Without people exercising this gift, the word won't be heard and people won't be saved. Therefore, Paul says that men of God should pursue this gift above all else. With that now understood, he will contrast this with tongues. He's got prophecy here. He's got tongues here. Okay, he's making a contrast. He's going to do that in the coming verses. In other words, the intelligible, thoughtful, and proper preaching of God's word will be used as the standard to compare the gift of tongues. Thus, he will demonstrate that the use of tongues at Corinth, which continues to this day in unstable churches, is unintelligible, thoughtless, and even improper. Instead of edifying the body, it is often divisive and it confuses the body. For this reason, Paul will set very strict limits on the use of tongues, limits which are all but ignored in many churches. In ignoring Paul's words, they ignore the one who inspired his words. Everybody got that? What is written here? If you believe that the Bible is inspired of God, nothing that happens in a church should contra contradict this word. If it is, it is not of the Spirit, okay? If somebody does not handle tongues the way that Paul outlines in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, they are not in touch with the Spirit. They are far from the Spirit in their use of tongues. That is what is being implied right now. Life application. Pay attention to the coming 39 verses of 1 Corinthians 14. Be prepared to rightly explain the use of tongues in a church, why they are to be spoken, who should speak them, and when they are to be allowed. That is our goal in the next 39 verses. Now, having said that, mom will not be here tonight. She's going to a baseball game. Yes, that's my mom. I, I haven't been to a baseball game three times in my life and maybe twice, and I was this big when I did, but she is going to a baseball game. I couldn't believe it when she told me that last night. So, 14-2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him he utters mysteries with his spirit okay paul will now contrast the speaking of a tongue to prophesying which he mentioned in the previous verse before analyzing this contrast it needs to be noted that the word translated here as tongue signifies anybody i've said it already a human language in acts 2 11 10 46 19 6 Romans 3.13, 1 Corinthians 13.1, 14.4, and Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, 10, 11, 11, 9, 13, 7, 14, 6, 17.5. The other, it is said that way. The other times that tongue is used, it referred to the literal tongue in the mouth or something which resembles a tongue, such as tongues of fire. Okay. In three of these verses, which I marked with an asterisk, which are Acts 10.46, 19.6, and Roman 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, it is implicitly understood to be a language because the people around them understood what was said. Everybody got that? So even though it doesn't specifically say this is a language, it is implicitly understood to be a language. Always in those verses, it is either a known language or, as I said, it's speaking of a literal tongue or a figurative tongue describing something that looks like a tongue. It is never ever in scripture used as anything other than that 
Everybody got those references. If you want them, email and I'll give them to you or just go and scroll down on the wonderful one website to One Corinthians um, uh, study, book study, and then just go to that verse and you can copy them and go look for yourself. Okay. Or another language. Also exactly. Verses 4, 13, 14, 19, 26, and 27. There you go. So he, he's, they've got that actually footnoted in their Bible to avoid this type of nonsense. But the real problem with what we call tongues in some churches today stems from the fact that it is translated as tongues. It should just simply say languages because it means languages. But, you know, they're going with the archaic English from years ago and it's carried forward and people seem to suddenly think that it means something other than a language. Okay, there is no instance recorded in the Bible where the word tongue signifies anything other than a known language. The text may be forced to have this word imply some type of ecstatic utterance or a shubop, bilubop type of sound, which is so commonly used by charismatics and others in an attempt to draw attention to themselves. So they can force that in there. But that is, and the reason why I picked shubop, libubop is because Tom and I used to do mission work with a lady that would do that. We'd be standing there trying to pray and she'd be going shubop, shubop. It just, it was crazy. It was so annoying. And it was, it was just distracting of everything that was of order of, you know, exactly what Paul will argue against. But that's why I use that particular thing, because she'd stand there and just be uttering just under her breath and not just loud enough to annoy everybody. Understanding that this is speaking of known languages, and it is, Paul's words implied that the language is not known to all. Let me read that again. For he who speaks in a tongue, I can't believe they footnoted that in your Bible. That's really wonderful that they did that. I'm glad they did that. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. Okay. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So read that again. Understanding that this speaking of known languages, Paul's words implied that the language is not known to all. It would be comparable to saying a French guy stood up and spoke French in a German church meeting. Everybody got that? He's not speaking about some unintelligible thing. He's talking about somebody from another language speaking something in a church meeting. In grasping this, we can properly interpret Paul's intent. When a person speaks in a tongue, meaning a known language which is not understood by those in the congregation, he does not speak to men, but to God. French guy stands up, starts speaking out. Who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to men in the church, he's speaking to God, right? We've got a couple people in here that can speak foreign languages. If they stood up and started screaming in the language that they know, we would know or we wouldn't know what they're saying, right? Okay, you can still speak Chinese pretty well, can't you? There we go. So we got a couple people that can speak other languages. Okay, when Charlie Garrett preaches at the Superior Word in Sarasota, Florida, he often preaches words and sentences directly from the Hebrew. I, I always do it when there's a reason to do it, other than in the book of Jonah where I just wanted to read the whole book in Hebrew as I was going. But other than that, when I do it in Hebrew, it's because I'm going to make a point about those particular words or a word in the context of those words, okay? When he blesses the elements of communion, he often gets the blessing in Hebrew. In this, none of the congregations, unless, say, Sergio is visiting, he might understand, or Rhoda, because she speaks Hebrew, um, they, none of them understand what he is saying. If he throws in a German or a Japanese phrase, which I will do with you know, my wife from time to time, the same will probably be true. Either few or none of those present will understand. Thus, he speaks not to men, but to God who understands all languages. However, holding to the tenets of scripture, as will be seen later in this chapter, what is it incumbent on me if I do that? 
I must interpret it. He always translates what he says in a foreign tongue for the benefit of those in attendance. This week, I gave the blessing over the bread, and I explained it, and I gave the blessing over the wine, and I started to go on, and I said, wait, I better interpret that, right? Because that's what the Bible says for me to do. And so I stopped, and I went back, and I interpreted it. The reason that when he speaks in a tongue, we'll call it a language, is he does not speak to men, but to God, is explained by Paul as he continues with verse 2. It is because no one understands him. Without training in a language, nobody suddenly grasps that language. Instead, they sit listening without comprehending. This is no different than the recipients of the tongues spoken to in Acts chapter 2. People heard the gospel preached in their own languages. If the languages were unknown to them, there would have only been confusion in their minds. But the Holy Spirit, acting as a universal translator, like on Star Trek, converted the words of the believers into a language that they could understand, a known language. Okay, I use Star Trek as an example because probably Gene Roddenberry heard about, you know, languages in Acts chapter 2 at one point in his life. And maybe that stuck with him his whole life. And he added that in as something that they have on Star Trek. If this didn't occur, a different outcome would have resulted. As Paul says, however, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. The term in the spirit is pneumati. It can mean wind, spirit, or breath. Just like in the Hebrew, ruach, it can mean wind, spirit, or breath. In the Greek, pneumati is just the same. They're, they're you know, corresponding words in those languages. As this is speaking of oral utterances, the word pneumati is certainly referring to breath. His breath speaks mysteries. But even if it is to be translated as spirit, it is certain that the breath of the man indicates the utterance of his spirit. There's no reason to assume that this is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. From the later verses, it will be seen that speaking in tongues, which do not fit certain guidelines, cannot be of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this here is certainly not speaking of the Holy Spirit inspiration either, because anybody can speak in any tongue, any time. And if they're not following the guidelines, which Paul will lay out for them doing that, then it's not of the Spirit. And so he's not speaking here of the Holy Spirit at all. He's speaking of the Spirit of the man or the breath of the man as it comes out across his tongue and lips, okay? A, one plus one will always equal two, and A plus A still equals A because it's a letter. Anyway, um, so here we go. Um, in Paul's words, we see that anyone who speaks in a different language will not be comprehended by those who hear it. Instead, they will find the words to be a mystery. All right. Uh, a mystery is something unknown, and it's simply unknown, and which cannot be grasped without an explanation of the matter. Thus, Paul will give very strict guidelines in the verses ahead for the speaking of tongues. He's going to be very, very strict on allowance of this particular gift, as he calls it. He calls it a gift. All right. Too often, readers of the Bible insert presuppositions into the text as they read. And that's a real problem, because once you've been told that tongues is speaking of this nonsense that they speak in charismatic churches, you're always going to believe that. You're always going to find a reason to believe that. And that's what people do when they have doctrine and they're set in their doctrine. Even, it's, even if it's wrong, they will look for a way to justify in their minds why it is right. That is, does anybody know what that's called? Cognitive... Dissonance. dissonance, cognitive dissonance. That's correct. And so people will do that. They will shut out anything that that works against their presupposition 
and they will simply go down the path that they are going. Jehovah's Witnesses are a perfect example of this. Mormons are a perfect example of this. Okay, Jews that don't believe that Jesus is the Christ are a perfect example of this. They have a presupposition, and it doesn't matter what evidence you provide, they are going to go down that path. And that's why I say every single Monday when I start typing a sermon, I try my very, very best to get rid of all presuppositions. It's a very hard thing to do because immediately you're thinking, well, that must mean. And then you read it and you say, you know what? It doesn't look like I was right. Now call Sergio and we'll talk about it. Come to find out I was completely wrong on what I was analyzing, what I had thought since the first time I read scripture. But you have to do that when you are interpreting what scripture is saying. You have to be willing to say, I could be wrong. One of the biggest places where people will fail to do this, I'm talking about in mainstream churches, not talking about cults like the Jehovah's Witness or, you know, crazy things like King James Onlyism. They're obviously wrong. But one of the places where we place our presuppositions the most in churches like the Superior Word is in prophecy and sensationalism, like the Nephilim being, you know, angels sleeping with humans. Okay. The Bible doesn't in any way proclaim that. It has nothing to do with that particular issue. And you can substantiate that from other parts of Scripture and yet people are going to go down that path and they will do anything to justify that because one, it's sensational. It brings the Bible alive in a different way. And two, they've got it in their head and they're just going to double down. That's not a good way of handling it. When I say prophecy, I'm talking about people that are adamant mid-trib, adamant pre-trib, adamant post-trib, and they won't listen to any other view. Even if there's a valid argument, they will not listen to it. We're as stubborn as the other people in that regard and we need to put that aside. Always put that aside. All right. The what? Cognitive dissonance. D i s s o n a n c e. Cognitive dissonance. Look it up. Read about it, and you'll understand exactly what it means. And that we're all, everybody's infected with that. It doesn't matter who on this planet you are. You have cognitive dissonance in some areas of your life because that's your worldview. It's based on a worldview. It's based on how you perceive things, and you will shut other things out. If you believe that that uh, the U.S. government blew up the towers on 9-11, you're not going to change your mind, even if evidence, you know, an airplane flies into the top of it and it collapses from the top down. You'll never believe otherwise. You will never believe it, even though you can watch it a thousand times. The airplane fly in, and the thing goes from the top down. Not, not It doesn't explode in different sections on the way. It goes, tung, 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 tung. All right? It happened. All right? I'm not going to argue with people over it. If they want to believe that, they can. You want to believe people believe in uh, uh, chemtrails? Some don't. People believe in uh, think of any conspiracy UFOs? Some don't. All right. What you've got your mind on that? You're not going to change your mind, even if it's a reasonable explanation which is given to you. Cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance starts to break down. Anger follows. That's right. Once cognitive, I'll say that so they can hear that when cognitive dissonance starts to break down with somebody when they see their worldview being challenged logically they get angry and that shows them that they're probably in the wrong position on that particular thing because they get angry and they don't want to face it cognitive is thinking dissonance means uh lack of, lack of harmony so you have a lack of harmony in your thinking basically is what it means look it up read it on it and try always when you come to scripture if you're going to do a study to say i'm going to put aside what i was taught because I could have been taught wrong. And that's why I pray this. When I open the, the Bible studies, I try to always say that. I could be wrong, and I don't want anybody to be misled by my analysis of Scripture. And cognitive dissonance 
infects me as much as anybody else I know. I, I don't know what it does because I believe what I believe. So obviously, until I come to my own resolution that I was wrong, I'm going to continue to believe I was right. That's just how it works. But it does infect us, and there it is in our minds. So life application. Be diligent in the study of the Bible. As believers, we get just one brief life to glean from it all we can before we will stand before our Creator for rewards and losses. Let us be approved on that day. I love to get Burke's emails because they're always filled with all kinds of analysis. He does it three, four times a week or more sometimes, and they're always a joy. They're just short little blurbs sometimes, sometimes two pages or so, and he's spending his life trying to get all he can out of Scripture. The first thing he does when he walks in here is, well, first thing he does is put down his Bible, and but first thing he does interacting with me is he'll say, what chapter is the, or what book of the Bible is the genealogies in? Like, he's trying to get me to stumble, and I, you know, and so we're challenging each other, and I like that. That's interesting, because he's trying to stimulate my thought process, and he's trying also to solidify his own by doing that. I know he is, because otherwise he might go home and forget what he had on his mind. So if we can do that, if we can always have the word on our mind, and always in our heart, and think on it, meditate on it, that is that is well worth it because we got forever in the presence of God to justify why we didn't do that. And there is no justification for us. So, 14.3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Okay, a little different here. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So it's close, but a little different on two of those words. All right, so that's 14.3. Paul contrasts verse 2 with these words by beginning with the word but as he noted people who speak in other languages while in the congregation meaning tongues don't speak to men but to god in contrast to this the one who prophesies to the congregation rather than simply having a soul conversation with god which the speaker can do anytime and at any place the one prophesying does more not only does god hear his words but he also speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Paul's words there. See the difference? When you're speaking in a church, a tongue, you're not edifying anybody. It's unknown to everybody, and it's just you and God that might know what you're, or you might speak a tongue and not even know what you're speaking. As I said, I know how to speak certain languages. I've memorized songs on the internet that play on my uh, computer all day long. I know what they say, and I have no idea what they're saying. So you can know a language without knowing the language, okay? Nobody's being edified there. God's just looking at me and saying, I wish you'd learn a little more, whatever, and stop pronouncing those words wrong or whatever. But uh, when it comes to prophesying, you're speaking to everybody in a language that they understand. So everybody see where Paul is going with this? He is very clearly saying these things to avoid the confusion which is happening in churches all over the place with these ecstatic tongues. He's saying that this is edification, tongues aren't, and he's not speaking about noise. He's talking about real languages. You know, uh, he, he, he is lawyer, lawyer enough or something. Yes, he is. He, he builds a point. He's point. building a case. And when I was working, the guy that taught us did all of that, and he put all these points down on books, big, thick books, and right. he named them this. Then he stood on them. Oh. He says, what I've taught you, you can stand on. You can that's stand on. That's that's here. exactly what Paul's doing. He's yeah. building his case that you can stand on. And yeah. He's very thorough. Paul is a methodical writer. And obviously, the Spirit is inspiring him. 
but these are his thoughts. They're working in unison. Holy men of God are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there you go with that. So um, uh, edification is spoken to build up the members of the congregation, to instruct them, to give them sound guidance, and to make them knowledgeable in the things of God. Exhortation is spoken to take away their feelings of insecurity, sluggishness, or timidity, thus making them bold. And the words of comfort take away sadness, hopelessness, and despair. All right? Under, and you know what? I get emails all day long, and I all three of those come about all day long. There are people that are hopeless, and they, they're in despair, and they want that. And then there are people that want to be built up. It's, I'm not sure if I can do this. What do you think I should do? Should I join the ministry? And what, you know, and so I get that. And then exhortation, you know, they're, they're insecure. And so you have to build them up. And I get emails like that all day long. And it's wonderful because it's not just in the church that this happens. We can do that with people that we're meeting on the street. We can do it with friends. It's just that Paul is speaking in the context of the church right here. But apply these things to your own life when you meet with other people and you see they have pain, comfort them. Exhort them, you know, give them encouragement, whatever. Understanding the contrast between the two. Which one is preferable to be spoken in the congregation? Tongues or prophecy? Obviously. Right. The answer is plain and obvious. Paul will say this later in this chapter with the words, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because in that tongue, either only the person and God knows, or only God knows. And that is it. Nobody else gets it. Whereas if you speak five words of intelligible sounds to people, they will be built up by those five words of intelligible sound. You know what those words are? What's that? Those five words. What are those five words? You're going to say it. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That is five words. I didn't read that in, in the book of Daniel or nothing. That's know, okay. Somebody that, said that and I thought it was just great. It, it fit very well. I thought you were going to say something like Charlie is really ugly plus or something. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, um, that's I like that. Christ died for our sins. Five intelligible words. All right. Again, following through the logic of Paul's arguments in this epistle. He demonstrates conclusively that tongues, though having been needed at the establishment of the church, are all but unneeded in the workings of the regular operating and established church. Thus, the comparison of five to 10,000 in his writing. He's showing the absolute folly of speaking tongues in a church. The inordinate focus on tongues by supposed tongue-speaking churches shows a lack of scholarship and a complete misunderstanding of the purpose and meaning of tongues in the now established church. Once again, when I speak and I read a thing in Hebrew, I'm going to make a point on it. I want to make a point on those particular words. We'll have one full sentence this week that's in Hebrew. And there's a reason why I do that. Sometimes it's just one word, but I do that for a reason. And hopefully while I'm doing that, you are learning a little bit of Hebrew so that when you go to the concordance and you look at it, you say, I remember that word because some words you just hear again and again right? We would hope that would be the case. Life application. When one is in the church for growth and learning, and in order to be edified, he should either be explaining the word of God or listening to the word of God being explained in a competent and relevant way. There should be nothing else in the church during the sermon except that. There's, you know, we can have lead-ins when you sit down, and I'm not very good at it. Some preachers are very good about starting out with a joke or a quip, and it kind of gets you in, uh, it settles you down a little bit, okay? I might do that once in a while. It's very rare, but 
there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it is leading to an understanding of what is coming in the sermon. But everything during that sermon, and indeed throughout the whole church, should be something that is going to build up the people. It should not have a lot of irrelevant things going on in the church. There, there just shouldn't be. Because the more things that are going on around you that are irrelevant to the message, that is where your focus is going to be. That is where it is going to be. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. 14.4. Uh, before I do that, um, tongue, the word tongue in this passage is pretty well explained. It's language. Yeah, language, 100%. So, so prophecy, that, that, you know, that, that can be loosely sure. interpreted. So, like, you know, it, it's, I could see where people would get into charismatic thinking with this because it's like, oh, okay, tongue, yeah, that's great. But, like, prophecy, like, you know seeing into the future that's right if they take that word out of its context okay. because the context is prophesying is speaking the message of god okay. and there's foretelling and there's foretelling and he is not speaking about foretelling is that distinguished in, in the word he uses here no no you have to just understand it from the context he is not speaking about foretelling that is not something that he is in the book of acts there's a little bit of foretelling there's very little for the most part it is all to edify the believers in the body okay four he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Okay, exactly the same word here, almost word for word. Okay, so this is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. The followers of Jesus were heard speaking various tongues according to the people groups who were assembled. Those who heard their words in their own language were edified. They had heard a message they could understand. However, anyone who spoke a different language was only edified in the language that they understood, not in the ones directed to others. This is exactly the type of thing that Paul is talking about right here in this verse. The only people who are edified by the speaking of a language are those who understand that language. And so if someone comes into a church in Walla Walla, Washington, where one language is spoken, that being English, and the individual begins speaking in Thai, only the speaker will be edified. Why will he be edified? Because he understands the language he is speaking. We process our thoughts through the construction of speech. This is done in our heads as we speak. When we put words together, which we understand, we receive edification of our thoughts in the compilation of those words. And believe it or not, you can learn simply by talking to yourself. You can learn by, you know, thinking to yourself. Talking can be just simply thinking out loud. And you can think through issues without any external stuff coming in. So when I'm saying you're edifying yourself, it could be that you're saying something and say, you know, I never thought of that before. I sat down and typed commentaries on the Bible, gone back 10 days later to read them. And I thought, you know, I don't even remember having written that. Isn't that insightful? You know, it's like, Ugh. and unfortunately it was me that did it. So it's like, I'm bragging at myself and I hate that. But anyway, it happens. We, we think up things and there you go. Okay, so um, I got a little note here. It should be noted that Paul says that he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself by virtue of the fact that the speaker is edified it implies and proves that he is speaking a known language not an ecstatic incoherent tongue as is so often displayed in supposed tongue speaking churches 
If the speaker were to be edified by Ula, Walla, Bongo, Wapo, Shush, and Shem, then everyone else who heard would be equally edified as well. Does everybody understand the premise? I just said that if somebody stands up and speaks in Thai, he's being edified. He's edifying himself. And Paul says that, and we know that's true. If I stand up in a church by myself and start speaking in a language that I understand, I will be edified by my thoughts going through my head. If I stand up and I say something that doesn't make any sense at all, then everybody in the church will get exactly the same edification as I will get because I'm getting zero. But if I get it, then everybody else is going to get it too. And that's not how it works. Everybody got that? It's one plus one will always equal two in doctrine. All right? Because the incoherence of the words would equally apply to all. Instead, this is a known language which the speaker is edifying himself with. Were it not so, there would be no edification for anyone, including the speaker. Again, as every verse of scripture concerning tongues has and will show, known languages are being referred to. Very important to keep remembering that it is a known language. It has nothing to do with anything other than a known language. Okay, now, I have had people say that, um, I've, I've heard this many times, and I know I'm going to get an email on this. I know I am, so don't send the email. Um, I've had people say, that's my personal prayer language. Holy Spirit gave that prayer language to me, and it might be, you know, Aramaic or it might, whatever, okay? And I don't understand the language, but that's my personal prayer language. That is false. I hate to tell you because you're not being edified either if you don't know the language. That is false. If you have a prayer language and you don't understand that language, it ain't a prayer language. Okay? You don't know to say amen. What's that? We can go to no end to say amen. There you go. You can go to no end to say amen to that. Okay, so just so you know, if you have your own personal prayer language and you don't know what you're saying, it ain't your personal prayer language because it's not edifying anybody. God is sitting there listening and he doesn't need to be edified. He already knows what's going on. All right, in contrast to this thought of tongues, which edify only the speaker of the tongues, Paul continues with, but he who prophesies edifies the church. A word of instruction which is conveyed in a known language by the hearers of that instruction will be edified in that instruction. And so which makes more sense for the building up of the church? Listening to someone speak Thai, which nobody else understands, or hearing a preacher speak in the native language of the congregation for everyone to understand? The answer is obvious. Life application. Speak the word of God. Speak it coherently. Speak it to others so that they will understand and therefore edify those who hear the word. For the saying is true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Five. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. But rather have you prophesied. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. All right. Is that still showing in the right place? I heard a thing click back here. I kind of moved in the chair, and I thought maybe the camera moved. All right, 14.5. Similar words, so I'm not going to reread it. Having shown the lesser nature of the gift of tongues, and then demonstrated that it does nothing to edify the congregation when tongues are spoken if nobody understands them, Paul tells the congregation that he wishes you all speak with tongues. 
speaking in foreign languages is always a valuable asset when encountering others who only speak in another language or whose primary language is another language. Because we have at times in the projects people that speak a little bit of English, but mostly Spanish. And if we have somebody there that speaks the Hispanic language, then it helps. Okay. And that would be the same with anybody. Okay. If there is a Hispanic, here it is, community in one's town and nobody speaks in the church, uh, nobody in the church spoke Spanish, then there would be no way of reaching out to them with the message of Christ. Okay. When I hand out tracks, I always keep in my tracks some Spanish tracks. We got them back there. If you know Hispanic people, then take a couple of them and hand them out to them, whatever. But I always try to keep one or two because we've got a lot of Hispanics in Sarasota. And I know that they will understand that much better in their own language than they will in English normally, unless they're raised here, okay? So it's just something that you do. We don't have a big Thai congregation, so we don't have a lot of Thai tracks. But, you know, I mean, if we we have somebody in the church that says, well, I have a, a lot of friends that are Chinese, would you order some tracks? Yeah, we'll order them for them, whatever. But you want to deal with people in their known language if possible, because they're going to understand it better. All right. So, um, however, tongues are a gift which are available to all people. With effort, anyone can pick up another language and can then effectively communicate with others in that language. Ray and Jess are over in PNG right now learning the language of Papua New Guinea. And then they're going to go to their own little village, which has its own dialect that nobody has ever issued a word of scripture before in it, in the whole history of the world. And they're going to start learning the dialect of those people. And then they're going to not only learn it, but they're going to start engaging in it to the point where they can now say to somebody, we would like you to start a translation committee with us where we take and give you the word of God in your own language. And they're doing that right now. I mean, my hair's standing up. They're like heroes doing something like that. That is amazing that they would dedicate the rest of their lives with two little children to do. I'm sorry, three, of course, three little children to doing that. It's amazing. But that's that's how you get the word out is you have to get those languages understood. Um, so I'll say that again, but speak that language in the church without anyone understanding it would be absolutely pointless, except for the person speaking and for God who knows all tongues. And because of this, Paul continues by saying to the Corinthians that even more than tongues, he wished that you prophesied. He then follows up with an immediate explanation for this. He says, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. It ought to be obvious. The explanation was given in verse 3, which said that he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Tongues are of no value to others in the congregation if nobody understands them. However, preaching the word of God is a benefit to all who listen. It is the wisdom of God, and a proper explanation of it will always build up the body. It will always do it. However, to not over-diminish the gift of tongues, Paul adds in a qualifying statement concerning them. Yes, the person who prophesies is greater than he who speaks the tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. The goal of any gift is to build up the body and to honor the Lord. If someone speaks in a tongue and that tongue is then translated, it becomes a message which is then understood by all others within the congregation. Thus, it has become a point of exhortation and edification of the body. That's the point of tongues. That's why we will at times say Greek or Hebrew or even Aramaic in the church is because there's a reason for it. People are being built up by it and hopefully they're learning more than just 
you know, the, the application, but they're learning something about the background of the language itself. All right. So, however, oh, I said that there is nothing in the verse to restrict the one speaking in the foreign language to also be the one who translates it. However, he should be competent in the translation. Just because someone can speak a foreign language, it does not mean that they are acceptable to translate that language. So whether by a speaker or by another, it is right for the words to be translated into the common language of the congregation for their edification. Otherwise, the words are merely an unedifying show of ostentation. All right, life application. The goals of using one's gift in the church are to build up others in the church and to bring glory to God. Those are the goals. Let us remember this in all that we do in and for the church. If you're standing up in a church and you're making a bunch of goofy noises or you're rolling around on the floor making a bunch of goofy noises, nobody's being edified in the church and God is not being glorified in the church. And that's the point of having a church is to edify and build up believers and to give God the glory. Actually, it should be the other way around. The God gets the glory first, but I'm following a process here. So anyway, 14.6. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge, or prophecy, or word of instruction? Okay, just a little different instead of like instructions as teaching, but basically it says the same thing. Okay, continuing to explain why speaking in foreign languages, tongues, is considered a lesser gift and a gift which only serves the individual but not the whole body. Paul contrasts the words of the preceding verse with but now. His words were, he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he indeed interprets that the church may receive edification. From this he gives his but now. And as a sign of warmth and fellowship, as well as instruction, he adds in the word brethren, or in your Bible, brothers. He is, nowadays, if you read the NIV, it doesn't say brothers anymore. It says brothers and sisters. I no longer recommend the NIV since about the 2004, uh, what do you call it, copyright, because they've gone PC. There was no need to do it. The languages are in the masculine or, you know, it, it's implied. And I've said this before, but maybe you don't understand. When somebody speaks in the Greek or Hebrew language, if there's one male present, it will be in the masculine. Right? If there's no male present, then it doesn't matter. It's all just in the feminine. They can speak to each other. But if there's a male present, it will always be addressing everybody in the masculine. That's just the way the language works, okay? And so why change that simply to have political correctness? It makes no sense. It's It was a waste of time, and there's no point in it. So, yeah, there's um, so many genders now. What yeah, there's so many genders. Pretty soon, you're not even going to be able to say brothers and sisters. So whatever. It's just it, The world is just going crazy. But, okay, he says brethren. He brings in the, uh, the fact that he is speaking to the whole group. All right, he's speaking to the whole body and wants the whole body to grasp his meaning, which is, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? The answer to his question is obvious. There will be no profit to them. When someone speaks in a foreign language, which is unknown to its hearers, there's no profit to them at all. And you notice how he keeps saying the same thing in a different way. He's beating this point to death so that we don't make this mistake that has come and in, crept into the church. They are not edified in any way, and they have simply sat through a word of unintelligible sounds which have no meaning to the hearers. And that could be either real languages or made-up languages. The people that are listening have no idea because 
they don't know what's being said. Like I said, if somebody came in and spoke Thai and they threw in a lot of stuff that wasn't Thai, I wouldn't even know it. If he threw in Chinese too, I mean, it's, it's all unintelligible. So I wouldn't know what he's speaking, right? Rather than such a self-centered display, Paul recommends that the greater gifts of revelation, knowledge, prophesying, and teaching be used to build up the congregants. It is a much better use of precious time that we have been given because we can assimilate the instruction and we can grow in our knowledge of spiritual matters. Paul doesn't say that there's no place for speaking in tongues, but that there is a much better use of time and gifts than following this avenue. For those who do speak in tongues, Paul will eventually give very specific guidelines to follow. Life application, if there are two teams playing football and one of the teams has a player who's determined to play baseball during the game, there will be dysfunction of the field on the field. Be a team player and work with your team using gifts you have for the benefit of the whole. Yes. I saw this cartoon that two little boys was talking and said, now there's 56 different genders. Do you believe this? Or said, not at all. There's two, the rest of them are out in left field. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they are, way left field, way left field. 14-7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Anybody ever heard a really bad player on a flute or a harp? Or... Bagpipes. Bagpipes. Oh, you get That'll the... make you cry. It'll make you cry. That's right. Well, now listen to how he breaks this down over the next few verses. Yeah, we got 30 minutes. We'll be okay. In the previous verse, Paul intimated that there is no profit in speaking in a tongue if it contains nothing to edify those who hear the tongue spoken. Language. Keep thinking of language. They say tongue, but say language. To bolster this, he now shows that even things without life have the same effect on us. If this is so, then how much more living beings who need to be articulate in their utterances in order to benefit others? And so he says, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, the flute and the harp are inanimate objects. They need something external to produce sounds. If there's nothing external applied to them, then no sound will be made. Can anybody tell me somewhere in the Bible that a instrument plays without human playing it? We hung our harps in the willows. They would hang them in the willows and the sound would blow through them, okay? That's just a, that, that was the point of that. Let the let the wind play the sound is what's being said. Well, they were sad ducks because they were gone from Jerusalem. That's right. They weren't in Jerusalem. And so they can't play mirth. And so let the wind play the yeah. mirth. That's the idea you're getting there. That's right. So um, such is the case with the vocal cords too. They will need to have the body initiate an action in order for them to resonate. Continuing on, he says, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Again, the image he makes is obvious. When one plays a flute, they vary the amount of wind which is entering it. They also cover or uncover various holes in order to obtain differing notes and so on. The harp requires fingers or a hand utensil to be applied to it in varying amounts of pressure and at varying intervals. Different strings on the harp are also employed for differing sounds. There must be a distinction, as Paul says, in the sounds in order for there to be any type of music to be produced. In the Greek, three different words are used to describe this process. Phone, diastole, and pythagas, or literally voice, distinction, and sound. 
And so we see that there is the sound, which is like the voice. There are dis the distinctions in that voice, which provide proper modulation. And then there are the resulting sounds as they modulate. All of these combine to form that which is coherent and which results in something useful, be it a sweet song, a request for dinner, or a cry for help. Whatever the intent of the sounds is, they must go through a certain process, which includes all three steps in order for others to hopefully comprehend what is being relayed. If you're drowning and you cry out for help, but your throat is full of water, you're not going to be able to make a coherent sound. You're going to make a gurgling sound as you go down. Understanding these different words, which Paul uses to describe what he intends, will lead us to a simple revelation concerning the false tongues, which are so often used in churches. To assume that God would make a secret prayer language that we didn't understand, or to assume that he would give an incoherent tongue that wasn't a known language, is utterly ridiculous. God cannot produce a language which is unknown to him. He can't do it. God can't make an orange a blue, and he can't make a two a three. There is order and there is harmony, which stems from who God is. He's not going to produce a language that he does not know. All right. And he would not produce a language which is unknown to us that we would speak to him for his benefit. That makes no sense at all. There would simply be no purpose in it. Life application. If you have the ability to speak, why would you waste that ability on a showy demonstration of meaningless sounds rather than words which edify and build up others? Be wise, speak with purpose and sense. 14.8. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Okay, that's close for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? The words today continue with the thought of the previous verse. I say today because this is a daily commentary I typed. Uh, there Paul noted the flute and the harp, which needed to be played properly in order to make distinction in sounds. Likewise, the same is true with the trumpet. The word for trumpet here is salpix, which is properly denoted as a war trumpet. It was comparable to another Hebrew Hebrew trumpet, which was played before battle and which jubilantly would announce the Lord's victory over his enemies. In the Old Testament, which is where Paul's mind would be referring to, there were different trumpets that were used for different occasions. The trumpet that he was most probably thinking of would be the chasotzerot, or the battle trumpet which is first referred to in Numbers 10, 1 through 10. That's a great sermon. If you don't remember that, go back and watch it because it was marvelous. In that, what are those two silver trumpets picturing? Anybody remember that from the sermon? Go back and watch it. You're all <laughs> epic fail. It's wonderful. I, what a marvelous, marvelous thing that God has given us in his word, the two testaments. Anyway, but I won't give any more in that because there's a lot more involved in it. In that description is found... Uh, the words of Numbers 10, verse 9. Let me take you there really quickly. Numbers. Shuffling papers here. Numbers 13, 8, 9, and 10, verse 9. Uh, when you go to war in your land against the enemy, who let's read the whole thing. It's just like 10 verses. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of his, the camps. Now think of what Paul is saying about trumpets blowing, okay? When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
But if they only blow one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. Everything is orderly. Everything has its own sound. And then he says in verse 8, the sons of Aaron, the priests shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. Verse 9, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feasts and the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and the sacrifices of your peace offerings. What is missing there? Your burnt offerings and the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The sin offering. Why would you not blow a trumpet over the sin offering? You don't, yeah, you don't want to call it to remembrance. You want it to go away. Watch the sermon. It is marvelous what is in those 10 verses. All right. Your peace offerings, you're calling to remembrance, peace with the Lord. Your burnt offerings, you're calling to the Lord to say, accept my offering. All of them are Christ, but the sin we don't want back. He came out of the grave and left it there. Oh, everything Hold pictures what Christ is going to do. One through ten. Ten, one through ten. Uh, and then he says, um, Exodus? Uh, numbers. Numbers. Uh, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. There you go. So isn't that wonderful? It's marvelous what's in the Bible if you just dig it up. All right. If this uh, in the surrounding instructions for this trumpet that we just read about, the Lord noted it would be used for various purposes, and when it was used, different signals would be given to distinguish what was occurring. Without the varying tunes, one wouldn't know whether the congregation was being gathered for a meeting or for going to war. They'd have no idea. As Paul says, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? They all show up because they think it's a party down at the tabernacle, and all of a sudden the enemy comes in and kills them all because they didn't sound the war trumpet and people left their their swords in their tents or whatever. Everything has to be orderly. Everything has to be done to purpose. That's what we do in the military. We play what in the evening? Taps, and then in the morning? Reveille. I hated that sound. By the end of basic training, I, I couldn't stand hearing that sound at three o'clock in the morning, and it's cold out, you know, it's Texas, it gets hot during the day, it's cold at night, and you get up in the morning, it's three o'clock, and they got that stupid thing blowing and you got like three seconds to get down stairs and in line or you're getting a 341 they pull a 341 and you get reported on that so it, it was brutal was it I, an actual trumpeter or was it a recording it was a recording but it went off i mean it was spot on I'm and you didn't get any sleep the night before because there's the guy next to you snoring over there and there's a guy over here that's crying and oh, it was just it was terrible and it wasn't difficult Air Force training is not what you would consider difficult. I, I, would, I could not have made it through like the Marine Corps, but it, it stunk because it was just so constant. Const I mean, you didn't sleep. Not, oh, oh, if you don't want to be punished, don't join the military. It was good after that. It really was. The Air Force, I'm not trying to complain here, but it, I just, You're failing. The, the sound of that reveille in the morning reality. after, yeah, at, it, reality, that's what it was. It was reality. It just, it was there and you couldn't do anything about it. But after that, it became a very good thing to do. I don't but. think they ever woke us up before six. Really? What were you in? Air Force. <laughs> You're kidding. No. 
Well, they changed that, I'll tell you. I went in 1984, and they had you up about 3.30, maybe 3. I don't remember. I think it was 3. And then you went back up, and you actually got dressed, because they gave you like a minute to get downstairs. And then you had to, you know, go back up and get yourself ready, and then out you went. But I, I, it was real early. It was black, and it was cold. So anyway, we'll go on. Um, yes, um, the same is true with the military. I just said, as Paul says, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? The same is true with the military units throughout history. There have always been different signals for different purposes. Uh, if you watch these war movies like The Patriot with Mel uh, Gibson, he, you know, the, the guy says, sound retreat. And they somebody, boop, 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 you know, and they all know the sound. It's time to leave or they have flags that will tell you what to do in different areas. They, there's order, there's structure so people know what to do. Those signals have been used to call the troops to battle, engage in various types of maneuvers to sound retreat or even to surrender. If the trumpeter blew the same note all the time, only chaos would result. The first time that the battle trumpet was used in the Bible came later in the book of Numbers when Israel took vengeance on the Midianites. Coming soon to a sermon near you. It'll be a couple more weeks. It's oh, great stuff. That is recorded in Numbers 31, 6 through 7. I'll, I'll read it to you so that you can uh, get a wet on your appetite. Numbers 31. Didn't they do that at AI too? That's much later. That's in the book of Joshua. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Numbers 31, 6, and 7. Then Moses sent them to the war. 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war of Phineas. I don't think they blew the trumpet, though. They may have. They, they raised the spear. They, they, they did yeah. raise the spear, and that everybody went, but I don't think it mentions the trumpets. They, that's exactly right. Um, where was I? 6 and 7. Then Moses sent them uh, to the war. 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war with Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the holy articles, and... The signal trumpets in their hand, or in his hand, and they warred against the Midianites just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. Okay, it's a brutal chapter. Uh, when we get to it, we'll explain it, and uh, some people don't want to hear this type of stuff, but it's the Lord. He is sovereign over his creation. He can do what he wants with it, so just keep that in mind. In the Psalms, the same trumpet is mentioned, not for going into battle, but for a joyous praise to the Lord at his victory. That is seen in Psalm 98. Let me read you that really quickly. Isaiah, back a little bit more Psalm. We're almost there. 109, 98. And it says in verse 4, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn shout joyfully before the lord the king someday the final trumpet battle will be our battle trumpet will be sounded when the lord's victory is complete and all of his enemies have been made his footstool the sounding of that trumpet is in the book of revelation it's in chapter 11 and it says there in verse 15 then the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven or there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have been the become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever paul's use of the trumpet is given to again demonstrate the need for coherence and understanding within the congregation he's doing his best to ensure that the corinthians and thus us see the importance of using words that can be comprehended by all when speaking in the church as he progresses through this chapter, this needs to be kept in mind. 
There should never be anything spoken within the church that is not perfectly clear and understood by all unless it is properly translated. To ensure this will be the case, he will give definite, definite instructions which are expected to be adhered to. How sad it is that they are all but neglected by so many churches today. There is, flat, or there is flash at the expense of edification. There is an attempt to draw attention to self rather than desire for exhortation. May we take heed to Paul's words and sound out notes of clarity and purpose. In life application, when in the congregation, let the voice which proceeds from your mouth always be a voice of clarity for instruction or edification. Ninth. So, it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're, you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Exactly. Paul continues to, to argue against the use of tongues in a church and instead for the use of logical, sensible set of utterances which will edify others. With this entire chapter almost exclusively being devoted to the issue of tongues, it is appropriate to contemplate why this is so. It is apparent that the use of tongues was abused in the church at Corinth. This is certain. But if we can put ourselves into that church, it may help us to understand why such meticulous care is being given to this subject. Corinth was a large and notable city, and there were certainly a variety of languages spoken there. The more languages a person spoke, the more valuable they would be in trading, marketing, and maybe even in politics. Such power is normally an intoxicant, and so to speak in other languages, if in front of others, would be like flashing a wallet full of money or pulling up in a new Corvette. With the church now established, Knowing Hebrew would be an even greater source of pride because these are Greek-speaking people for the most part, but there are some Hebrew people there, right, in the synagogues. If one could read the scriptures in Hebrew as well as Greek, he would have a leg up on all of the others because they had the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the Old Testament, and they also had the Greek scriptures. If you can read them both and you can see the differences because there are differences and maybe one is explaining the other in a way that you haven't thought of before, whatever, it's big, big show. I can prove how smart I am, right? He'd have a leg up on everybody else. It's no different today. Pastors and teachers who know the biblical languages are always, always held up in some sort of esteem, even if they're really crummy at proper biblical interpretation. And I can tell you this is absolutely true because I know pastors and preachers that can speak Greek, they know Greek, Hebrew, and their analysis of scripture is terrible, absolutely terrible. Just because you can speak a language does not mean that you're a professional in that language. And that is what's called a category mistake. And way too many people say that. Oh, he knows Greek. As if all of a sudden it means that he's a specialist in what he knows. Well, guess what? He's also a mid-trib preacher. He also believes that you can lose your salvation. He believes this and he believes that. It doesn't matter if he can speak Greek because I read Greek commentaries all day, every day. And I read Hebrew commentaries all day, every day by people that are trained in the biblical Hebrew and Greek, right? Charles Ellicott. We'll give him as an example, and then we'll give John Gill as an example. And they didn't come to a completely different conclusion on one verse, and they can't both be right. Either this is right, or this is right, or they're both wrong, but they cannot both be right. All right? Add in Albert Barnes. He's got another view on it. And you add in um, uh, Meyer's commentary on the New Testament. He's got a different idea on it. And all of a sudden... Who do you believe? They're all perfectly trained in the biblical languages. 
they can't be right. All of them. It doesn't mean anything that somebody can speak Hebrew and Greek if they don't analyze the Bible properly. Never make that category mistake that just because somebody understands a language, he's a specialist. I'm not going to brag about this, but when Sergio has a theological question from the Old Testament, who does he email? He emails me, and he's the one that speaks Hebrew, right? Then when I have a problem with Hebrew, who do I email? I email Sergio. That's the way it works. Some of us are trained in one thing. Some of us are trained in other things. It doesn't mean that either of us is a specialist. It just means we're checking with each other when he knows Hebrew much better than I do. Just because he knows Hebrew doesn't mean he's a specialist. So please don't make that error. And I'm not just talking to the people in here. I'm talking to the people online that are always, I, I see these posts all the time. Oh, this guy, he knows Hebrew. He knows Greek. It doesn't make any difference. It makes zero difference if his theology is unsound. Guess what? They translated the book of uh, the New World Translation of the Bible from Hebrew and Greek, didn't they? Jehovah's Witnesses. But they had a prior commitment they had, to a false doctrine. They had a prior commitment to a false doctrine. That's exactly right. It doesn't matter what you know if you don't apply it properly within the context of Scripture. Please remember that always. That is so important to understand. Let me see if I can figure out where this is. Um, uh, I'm going to just go back and read this again. Paul's use of the trumpet is given to again demonstrate the need for coherence and understanding within the congregation. He's doing his best to ensure that the con Oh, wait a minute. We're in 14.9. I'm sorry. I was reading back on the last one. Okay. I knew that I couldn't find what I was looking for. Here it is. It's got a leg up on the others. Pastors and teachers who know the biblical languages are always held in some sort of esteem, even if they're really crummy at biblical interpretation. The flash of knowing the language immediately places them in the spotlights, whether they are handling the use of that language properly or not. Understanding this, we can continue with the evaluation of this chapter from a reasonable perspective of what Paul is telling to the Corinthians and thus us about the gift of tongues. We've got just time to finish this one and we're going to have to finish. In the past couple of verses, he has shown that instruments are only effective if they are played properly. If they aren't, then only noise will result. Further, actual harm can come about from an improperly played instrument. The war trumpet can cause chaos on the battlefield if the wrong signal is played. Because of this, there must be intelligible sounds which emanate from those instruments or there will only be worthless noise. In comparison to that is the use of tongues. In this verse, Paul begins with, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will you know what is spoken? If someone comes into a church and starts speaking in a language that nobody else understands, the result will be just like on the battlefield, chaos. The air will be filled with nonsensical noise, even if it's known as a true language, which the term words easy to understand implies, a known but not understood language. Why would anyone walk into a Greek-speaking church and start speaking in French? It makes no sense. This is what Paul is trying to tell them. The congregants probably thought they were being impressive or maybe even cool by speaking in other languages, but in reality, they were only making unintelligible noises. Remember from the fifth verse of this chapter, Paul said, He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he indeed interprets that the church may receive edification. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to wake up and be mature in their conduct 
for those who thought they were doing something nifty by speaking in another language. They weren't. He next tells them that by doing so, they were merely speaking into the air. Sounds were floating around in the church, but they were only unintelligible noise. Life application, don't speak meaningless words into the air just to look cool. You won't. All right, we got to close up. We don't have time for another verse. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is knowable. It is understandable. Thank you for the people that are trained in biblical languages. Despite the fact that we talked down about it a little bit today, somebody has to be able to go back to the original and analyze it. And one may not get the right analysis in this place, but he probably will in another. And one person may get it wrong here, but he might get it right there. And eventually, there are enough commentaries out there of people that have spent their lives trying to discern your word that we can come to a right analysis of it. And you know, Lord, when I do my sermon typing, I'll thank you when I come across something that Adam Clark says that is so insightful. It's just that way, Lord. You've given us great people that have done these things over the years, and they someday will stand in your presence and they will receive the rewards for what they've done right and they'll get their losses for what they did wrong but we do pray that uh, our doctrine would be built upon theirs which is correct and we would reject that which is wrong and we would apply it to our lives so that the rewards would be exceedingly bountiful in our own lives may it be so to your glory alone and we pray this in jesus name amen, amen. Very good. Oh. Okay, here we go, breaky, breaky. Oh, remember, if you're...